Well, normally I would totally, I think, agree with you that it should be customers first. But I would always talk about technology and customers, but better customers and technology in this order. As I think it should be not customers serving technology, but technology serving customers. Welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you for joining us on our quest to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Jan Wermut, and joining me, as always, my co hosts Scott Burson and Jonathan Edwards. Today, we welcome Professor Dr. Frank Piller of the RWTH Aachen University. Dr. Piller, or Frank, is considered one of the leading German experts for innovation management, open innovation, customer co creation, and product individualization. His research has received numerous awards, like the PDMA Co-Creation Award or the nomination for the Innovating Innovation Award from Harvard Business Review and McKinsey. He previously worked at the MIT Sloan School of Management before becoming a professor in Aachen, where he is now the head of chair of the Institute for Technology and Innovation Management. Frank habilitated in 2004 on open innovation and user innovation at the TUM Business School in Munich where he headed the research group Customer-Driven Value Creation. That's, of course, something we're super interested in here. I got to know Frank and his work in more detail by going through the MicroMaster program at the RWTH on managing technology and innovation, how to deal with disruptive change, which I can only recommend. So as you can see, all of this screams for having him on the podcast, uh, and not lastly, because in that course, he mentioned his uh, he mentions his appreciation of jobs to be done, or that kind of thinking or an approach, which is something of a household philosophy uh, here at the Product Quest podcast. So Frank, uh, we deeply appreciate it that you take the time and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Perfect. So let's 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 jump in. I, what immediately strikes me from reading your your biography and looking at kind of the course of your work and your career is that there always seems to be technolo- technology and the customer in there. So there's a lot of things that are are about manufacturing even. So so there's mass individualization, product individualization, but there is always this side of value creation, customer co-creation. So these kind of two things that at least in my experience, are like two different worlds, or they are always in a kind of tension, uh, at least in one way or another. And you seem to have navigated that very naturally to have these two things in your life or in your work. So can you elaborate a little bit that? Is it, is it, is it even a tension for you? How, did you? how do you see that? Well, normally I would totally, I think, agree with you that it should be customers first. But I would always talk about technology and customers, but better customers and technology in this order. As I think it should be not customers serving technology, but technology serving customers. This said, I think the predominant meaning of innovation is nowadays that we first have to really get latent customer needs and then develop a fitting technology. However, I also acknowledge there are some examples where it's really technology first. There are no great and very successful companies that really came up with a technology and later only but successfully were seeking the problem, you know, that their technology is solving. So that's also this way, especially in entrepreneurship, but normally customers. But there's one, and this is really was mentioned by habilitation in 2004, and they strongly try to distinguish between customers and users. And I'm trained somehow academically in a domain that we say, well, they are customers, but what really counts are users. And um, as a driver of innovation, and so I would say it's customer is nice, but I would personally always would take a user-centric perspective. Okay. Oh, that's a very interesting point. I think a very relevant distinction as well. I, I, I completely see that. So the way I'm thinking about this is I would, for a long time, I would have said the same thing. I would have said, well, customers first and then technology. But the reality is just that, 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 that's, that that's on the one hand, not true. And probably also not a very reasonable strategy uh, to be kind of, to be that open and very often technology. I mean, look at AI. That's clearly technology driven and enables a lot of innovations. So, so I can. Uh, is it? Uh, uh, ah, okay. Well, AI first is this, but you know, when, when is AI adopted? It was adopted just very recently when ChatGPT came up. And why? 
GPT-3 or the language models were out there longer, but you had this rather complicated dashboard and you really needed to have at least some basic intuitive knowledge to interact with this. With shared P um, PD, um, GPT, it was so easy to interact. And of course, some people just play around with OpenAI for the sake of testing it. But if you get a continuous user, then as it really serves you. As for in my case, it really helps me to write boring review letters much, much faster and easier. So it or you know, also helps me with some publications. And so I would say AI actually is a good example that only as it got very accessible, that really average users could address it, they are adopting it for their personal problems, you know. And of course, there are always if some novelty, but then even as a seek for novelty, the seek for curiosity. You know, it is a very user-driven um, need while we interact with this technology. It's not a sustaining business value proposition, you know, for a company that my users just interact with me, you know, like corporate technology because of curiosity. But yeah. also there, that's, that's a need. However, there's one important point, and I think you said this is where I got a little bit skeptical, and if we'll take a recent thing like sustainability. As we all really need, um, no, we have to become more sustainable. But we also know that we often just, uh, at least myself, I'm talking about, but still taking a plane and consuming stuff, you know, which perhaps yes. is not so sustainable. So there may be actually instances today where it's not customer first, you know, but whatever, planet first or society first. And um, so... This is why I recently got thinking a little bit. But with regard to technology and what companies normally are doing, I think on the long term, a technology and a company is only successful if it really serves open needs of users. Okay. Yeah. So I find that really, really interesting. Could you maybe also elaborate a bit more this? So is that distinction between customer and user? I mean, I, I, I don't know why, to be honest. But I, I naturally talk about customers, but I think there is a, sure. an important distinction in, in, in there. Could you elaborate a bit on, on why that's well, key? Yeah, so it, it goes back to Eric van Hippel from the MIT, who used to be my boss when I was there, a really <laughs> great innovation scholar. And Eric um, was very particular in this as when he looked at the sources of innovation. And when we talk about customer-centric innovation, we'll often have this perspective, what Eric calls the manufacturer-driven paradigm, that a company is innovating on behalf of customers and users, and the company wants to profit by selling the innovation. However, a lot of us, probably of the listeners, perhaps even some of the three of you, have been user innovators, meaning we were innovating to solve our own problems. And so, and this has been thought to be one of the dominating sources of innovation. Uh, you know, this necessity is a matter of innovation. You have frustrated users that want to, you know, that have an open need and they are not waiting for manufacturing to solve it, but they get innovating by themselves. And this has been shown as one really of the biggest, biggest drivers in our innovation system, even if traditionally, Companies don't get it yet. You know, they think we innovate on behalf of customer of our customers and users. So this is where this distinction from the, when we talk about the sources of innovation is this distinction between users and customers originally or, um, comes from. But then, if you look about from a lot of um, products now, um, take take an automobile, take a car. A car, of course, you have a customer in a family who may buy it. And this may be influenced by the user, you know, the daughter who really wants this particular color or this entertainment system and so on. Yeah. But then this car is used by several people. And I think a lot of innovation actually in the automotive industry is to allow yes. personalization of the car during the user stage. Think of smart products, you know, so they really allow us to really interact with with customers, with, with products while we use them. Well, and customer is very much focusing on this traditional perspective of, you know, the point of sale, the original needs, you know, I have to, when I buy a product, but 
nowadays, because of technology, we have so many great opportunities, you know, that we can adopt products, that we, you know, change products, everything where we put the, the term smart in front of it. And there, I think users, usage and the usage stage and users are perhaps a better term. Okay, so I see it's kind of, it broadens the perspective on, on who is actually a kind of a relevant stakeholder, a relevant, well, user of the mm -hmm. product and not just kind of the person paying the bills, if that's, or paying the check, whatever then the, 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 the thing is. Exactly, I think about it, and this is what I, I think you, you in this um, online class, you mentioned in your kind introduction, we don't really emphasize this enough, I would say, but Traditionally, we always thought that innovation is over when we launch a product. You know, we have we, we, we access latent needs, we have, we have a techno technology-driven process, we create opportunities, we design, develop the products, we do the final concept text, we launch. And then traditionally, we think innovation is over and sales takes over. But yeah. again, for everything that has an object smart in front of it, just think of your cell phone. Probably the more, oh, you can't see it, uh, but... Probably your most, uh, you know, your most popular app, your most, um, you know, useful app was just invented after the hardware of your cell phone has been designed. And so we are now entering actually a an innovation world, but a lot of innovation is taking place during the usage stage. If someone takes data from a connected product and puts up, you know, um, connected services. So really this emphasis on using a product is where we see now a lot of innovation going back to the automotive industry. There was this big cry out um, when BMW started to charge in South Korea, users for having the heat seat, you know, everyone, when you wanted the heated seat, you had to pay $12. Yeah. When you wanted to open the, you know, the roof, um, 20 bucks. But they said, well, therefore you get the car much cheaper and you just pay what you use. So the more we come into this world of smart connected products, the more is actually innovation entering what we traditionally call the user stage. That's and this demands also really different, you know, approaches um, um, how we interact with customers. And perhaps this basic ability where when I looked in previous editions of your podcast, where this traditional success factor of really understanding latent customer needs, as we have to engineer it all in this hardware. This is changing a little bit as we just have to put flexibility and adaptability in the hardware. As often, at least for myself, only after I use, for example, my cell phone for a couple of months, I really know what I want, you know, and what yeah. it can do for me. And so also yeah. with this changing perspective, I think um, a lot of our old tools of innovation management have to be resolved. Well, one of the things, you know, it was interesting and in, in just sort of... Uh, um, in preparing and reading a bit about your background and getting back into the concept of lead users. I remember mm -hmm. hearing a lot about lead users, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And I'll tell you one thing as a qualitative interviewer, I found interesting, or I was always very interested in, what has a customer modified? Have they added a mm -hmm. label? Have they, mm -hmm. I, I, I used to do a lot of work in tractors. And so have they welded mm -hmm. something? Have they added a trash can yeah. or a bucket or what have they added and there's, I'll just give you one example. We were studying the job of digging graves, interesting job. And uh, in the on the back code, they had welded a, a level, essentially a level. And so that didn't come with the equipment. They had attached it on there. So when the bucket's moving, they could look at it and know if it, know if it was leveled. And so the environment becomes such a natural part of discussion. Mm -hmm. I, just look at what they've changed and, and ask them about it. But my question, so I, I, I've personally witnessed the power of this, but my question for you is, you know, this, it's see this, this idea of lead user, it's almost something we don't hear about that much anymore. It seemed like yeah. it was really popular 15 years ago and maybe uh, professor Von Hippel was just a proponent of it, but any idea why we, we just, or is that just uh, my perception or, or um, what are your thoughts? I would say it's a little bit perhaps your perception, um, but two, two things. First, I think you're totally right that this old perspective on lead users never got the attention mm. that what we now empirically know mm. the scope of the phenomena is. Mm. So now since um, 
the you know the OECD big international um, institutions they own the world definition of innovation as they publish this most famous handbook, the OECD handbook on measuring innovation, which was published five years ago in its fourth edition. After like every 10 years, they have a revision. In this fourth edition, the OECD officially acknowledged that a source of innovation are lead users in terms in B2B, like in the tractor example, but also citizens. And so it's now official. After the OECD made it part of the definition, all the national census offices had to measure lead user innovation, which they did. So the US census office, the Japanese, the German. And we really see that when up to 30, 40% of all innovation activity, now statistically proven, is lead user innovation. So the data is there. Still, I'm totally with you, Scott, that most companies really don't have a lead user practice yet, which is astonishing. If you go to MedTech, they have it. So in MedTech, in the MedTech sector, they know it's innovating nurses, innovating doctors, you know, and not the average doctor, not your best customers, but doctors or nurses in extreme needs, you know, at very high-end hospitals or in the army under wrong, you know, difficult conditions, that they are the innovators. You have it... Um, in, in, in some like in the in the agricultural sector, if you work with John Deere and Class, they actually know this. They have these practices. If you go to Hilti for power tool. So, but these are a few examples. In average, it's still these what in academia we call the Schumpeterian view of innovation. You know, Schumpeter, who was really that the entrepreneur is the innovator, the company is the innovator. However, I would say intuitively more and more companies capture lead user innovation as there is this growing practice of using social media streams and just analyzing big data for innovation impulses. And actually, who is publishing in a forum about her needs and her solution about a problem? A lead user. And so with companies, you know, and what I see in many companies now, that they reach out that on top of qualitative interviews and customer surveys, many companies now have a practice um, to really, you know, um, call social media streams for innovative impulses. And then very often they actually get access to lead user information, even if they are not aware of that and not do this dedicated process. And that may be um, just final point of this with Eric von Hippel, he described the least user method, but this was a very complicated method of projects at least costing half a million dollars. You know, as you really, it was, as we're looking for this needle in the haystack, you know, as there are very few lead users. So, but only, but, with, you know, technology as a research tool and data-driven innovation, actually, it's much easier nowadays to get access to lead user information. That's so interesting. I'll tell you, the question I always had when I used to read Von Hippel's work, so you find a lead user and they've got something, they've, they've added this, this uh, level onto a bucket or whatever. And so, but then the question is like, well, how, how, I, I feel like I'm stuck not knowing how, how, how rep is that literally just one person's problem problem or uh, or is it a massive to me i was uh, always a bit stuck on understanding mm -hmm. how, uh, how big is problem how mm -hmm. how much can i generalize but, uh, it or but, literally was it just for his individual situation yeah i always call it so if you do it as a company if you find this lead your information i always say you have to do is it a nerd or lead user test and this is mean you always have to do traditional concept testing. As a lot, there are a lot of nerds out there, and yeah. they create something specific only they want. The lead user, by definition, is foreshadowing general demand. You know, and he or she would come up with something that the majority of the market wants later. So this is why I always say companies, if you do have a lead user practice, or if you use netnography or, you know, data mining to identify really new, you know, solutions from the internet, don't implement it. Always do a traditional concept test with the majority of your two days customers that want to buy it, you know, um, and so on. It's, it could be just a nerd that comes up with this or a freak. Right. So what would you say are the... Um the basic concepts of lead user innovation for people who might know less about it? 
So the, the basic idea of lead users are that lead users um, are people that really innovate out of their own need, you know, if they have an open problem. And all of us have problems, but often we are not incentivized enough to innovate. We wait until, you know, a company is solving the crash. So first is there's this open need and there's a high incentive to solve it today. This is why we have many more lead users actually in business to business, in industrial markets, as there the incentive to solve your problem is bigger. A lot of process innovation is lead user innovation. You know, if someone improves their own manufacturing processes, they do this to benefit from using the manufacturing process, not from selling the improved processes to others. Second, a lead user, and that was exactly Scott's point before, is foreshadow general demand. So it's not a very niche, very specific application that one person wants, you know, or one uh, user, but that really there's a general market will follow. And thirdly, lead users also have kind of solution skills, you know? So I I'm a, probably became a professor just talking about innovation as I have two left hands, you know? So my lead user abilities are really limited. Uh, well, well, I can hire my students, you know, to do prototypes and really solve the problem for me. But I would be actually a bad lead user as I lack a lot of technical solution skills, you know? So these are the three elements um, that a lead user needs. So incentive to innovate already to solve your problem today. Secondly, being ahead of the market, you know, and certainly having some solution skills. And only if this comes together, identifying a lead user is interesting for a company. What we also know is, for example, Jonathan, that a lot of lead users, they have something and still no company sees that this is relevant. But other users come to them and say, oh, this is really cool what you built. Can you do it for me? And so they become entrepreneurs. There's been a big study by the Kaufman Foundation, a big US-based you know, foundation fostering entrepreneurship. And they actually saw that startups that are being founded by use, lead users, we call them the user entrepreneurs, are 10 times more successful as startups that are founded out of the need as an entrepreneur saw, you know, had a technology and just thought, or oh, someone probably will use it, uh, but not he or she by themselves. So that's actually also a strong pattern in entrepreneurship that lead users that are very ahead of the market, that no established companies sees this um, is, is becoming active on their own. And a super great example for everyone listening is just go to the web and Google patient innovation. There's a huge website on patient innovations. And these are patients. And of course, if you're really sick with a specific, um, you know, illness, you have a very high incentive to innovate. Yeah. Or it's often not perhaps the patient, but it could be the relatives of the patients, you know, but really people very close to this. And if you go to this website, you find thousands of super fascinating innovations that really came up often 10 years or so before there was a commercially, you know, solution available by a big medtech company, you know, pharmaceutical company. However, lead user innovations are not enough is if you take the, time, the example of patient innovation, there are few patients that really innovate, but the majority of patients just want to consume. You know, they don't want to really build their own, um, you know, heart device or orthopedic device. And they also want something that's cheap, that the health insurance is paying and so on. So therefore there's really like a division of labor between lead users and manufacturers. And uh, actually one mandate of the academic community I am in that's really starting this lead user is that also policy makers should really support lead users in the innovation. You know, it's a really a support, an, an interesting source for innovation, perhaps less than supporting established companies in creating, you know, new needs and so on. But they should support established companies by transferring lead user innovations, manufacturing them cheaply and safely and making them accessible for the majority of users. I, I really like, I want to maybe like, push you a little bit on, on, on having a stance here. So it seems like 
maybe this is too simplistic, right? But but traditionally thought, okay, it's the company that innovates. There are some people within the company, experts or whoever, they kind of innovate on behalf of the customer. Then more and more these co-creation kind of things came in. And now it's, it, you almost sounded sometimes here and there that you would flip the relationship. So it's actually, it's it's the user that innovates kind of on behalf of the company and they, and they kind of, they execute. Or is that too simplistic view? So yes, no, no, it's totally correct. I would say actually it's the other way around. Before there were companies, <laughs> there were only users. <laughs> Think about that. Okay, we have yeah. companies, it's rather something new, you know, like hundreds of years ago, people were really doing a lot of their own stuff, you know, they couldn't yeah. outsource everything. That was just coming with the industrial revolution. So, but um, but I would say, yes, and it's really empirically proven. It's <laughs> a lot of statistics that really shows that in many industries, a dominating pattern is that the original source of a radically new innovation, that's also important. What lead yeah. users normally do is something really novel, you know, as this is where new need resides. Established manufacturers are much better in incremental innovation and cost, you know, innovation for cost saving. And probably 95% of all development activities is incremental. So there's still a lot of room for manufacturers to innovate. But this functional novel, you know, this radical innovation, it has been really shown, they go back to lead users. And companies actually would profit from transferring this. And also society would profit as you know, lead users are bad manufacturers. Either they become entrepreneurs and manufacturers by themselves, but normally lead user innovation is not accessible, even if it would be useful for the majority of people. You mentioned a very interesting third term, co-creation. Yeah. And so, and this is something in the middle. As the traditional idea is we have lead user innovation, totally autonomous systems, yeah, and manufacturing innovation. Co-creation is somehow, for people like me, there are, let's say I'm innovative, I have my needs, but I lack the lead user skills or my, my costs are too high to really become an entrepreneur. Yeah, this is why I love to be a professor. However, now a company could really set up an ideation contest, a co-creation co site, and I help people like me to work with a company that I could tell them my ideas and so on, and but then they would transfer it into the technical solution. So I don't know if you discussed the double diamond model um, of design thinking in this podcast, a very established model in innovation management that says first you have the problem space. So you have a need, an opportunity, then you go out to ideate, find needs, then have a problem statement that's really what you want. And then you have the solution space, meaning then you turn that need into a technical solution. A lead user goes both through the problem space and the solution space, as does a manufacturer that goes through the problem space by engaging, for example, a job to be done in outcome-driven innovation and market research to understand the you know, needs of um, its customers and then goes in the solution space where often there's a real competence of companies on technical problem solving, you know, law, uh, ramping up manufacturing and so on. Co-creation is somehow split of labor. This problem space is somehow outsourced to customers. And then in co-creation, that it's not just customers and users are asked for the needs, but also for ideas how to address it yeah, with specific tools. But then the solution space is in the hand, again, of the manufacturer. Okay. And so co-creation is somehow a company is setting up an initiative to get specific people with lead user characteristics. Yeah, let's call it like this. Not average customers, really important. You can't co-create with average customers. But you need people, customers, leading edge users, people with lead user characteristics, but which don't want when so from it to co-create with them. So how can companies in practice um, do lead user innovation uh, how do you go about it? Do you need, is it about uh, having people observing what's going on in the world and and having uh, a lot of uh, information and doing some kind of detective work to see what's going on? Or do, or yeah. do you organize events? So how, how do you go about doing this? Yeah, everything is possible. And what you said 
actually this detective world was a traditional lead user method. And this was what I said earlier, a very expensive process as you were really going up literally around the world to identify the lead users. You could then, and then you had to search for the lead users. An alternative could be co-creation, where the lead users find you as you host a hackathon, an ideation contest, an open workshop where you freely invite people, you know, to self-select them as they're really incentivized to work with. But certainly, what do you do, Jonathan, if you have a problem? You probably Google it. And what you then find, often not the customer side, but a user forum where perhaps users talk to each other. And this is a great thing what lead users do and gives us the way to assert opportunity to find them. Lead users don't want to benefit from selling their innovation. So they don't care in IP and intellectual property. So lead users nowadays very quickly go to a forum, to an internet site, to a you know, Facebook group or whatever, LinkedIn group, and share both their problems and their solutions. They're a great case in every innovation in sports is a lead user innovation of more novel form of so windsurfing, mountain biking, you know, I'm here at the coast in Belgium or this kite surfing. Now these new forms, all these are lead user innovations and all are really discussed in forums first. And this is also like, if you take kite surfing, this is an industry where really the users and the manufacturers are closely knit communities. And they really, and they, from the, and they go to events, they host events, but especially as they go to the forums and see what users talk about. They share their designs as again, they don't want to profit from selling it, but they're actually happy if a manufacturer steals this innovation and professionally produces it, hopefully acknowledging that it was Jonathan or Scott, you know, who was the inventor, but they often don't want royalties. And this is also something what economists didn't understand in the first place. Why should someone share the innovation? Well, if my benefit is usage and not selling the innovation, actually IP is not important. Yeah. I think in general, it's 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 customers usually have or users in general they have a they have an openness, especially to share their problems. That's but I'm I'm very often more in, in contact with kind of the average user, and they are they are super interested in sharing their problems, because on the flip the flip side is exactly what you mentioned. The flip side is I get a better product, and I, mm -hmm. and that's told and that's my benefit. That's what I really want. If the company, of course, does a good job at, at innovating then in the end, but that's a different yeah. question. And, and, and of course, if you take machinery, you know, in business to business, that's probably more a collaboration. And then if you have very professional lead users, they nowadays also know about the value of their knowledge, you know, like in material science and so on, in, in medicine, the same. Um, but in general, it's exactly, um, um, John, as you just said, you know, um, this I, I profit that someone does it for me in a professional way, you know, and perhaps that gives me the first edition of the profit of the product for free. <laughs> so, would you so, distinguish? Okay, go on. I, I, would you distinguish between a crowdsourced innovation and co creation? Are these two um, different things mm -hmm. or are they in your mind the same? No, it's the same. So for me, crowdsourcing is a way for co-creation. You know, co-creation is more this, this way. I co-create between a company and a user, and crowdsourcing is a way to identify users as I, you know, broadcast a problem, and then people that would like to contribute self-identify and then, you know, join a website, or whatever I do, a workshop is. But crowdsourcing is a tool of co-creation. Yeah. I think it's it's uh, maybe here it can, this kind of this question kind of fits. So so the, we we talk a lot about now about kind of integrating the user in one way or another in the innovation process, and I think that has become more and more. Well, that's my way of phrasing it. It, it has just there's sometimes the tendency that that becomes a buzzword that we are all. I mean, which company on the planet isn't customer-centric at the moment? I think there are very few that. I mean, most of them say they are customer-centric, whether they are or not. That's a different question, but at least that kind of language has, has kind of creeped in. How would you, so how do you in general see this 
going or are companies really on large on the large scale becoming more and more user focused is it more of a buzzword what's the state kind of of user centricity if you like from, from yeah. your view? so on the wording i totally agree with them i think they all acknowledge it if i you know do a company training many more people than like five ten years ago have heard for example about job to be done you know so the basic idea and it's in the lingo of a company are they actually doing it? Not so sure. As if you really look in the practice of innovation management. Of course, in each, every larger company, you find a pilot on crowdsourcing. You find a co-creation site. You find someone who very sophisticated did, you know, events for an entire outcome-driven innovation process, you know, for that. Is it a routine? No. I think the problem is that the routine of innovation in many companies is, oh, I still believe my gut feeling as a product manager. Oh, we don't have time. Let's do a quick focus group, a quick concept test, and that's it. And this is actually one of the puzzles. And perhaps you guys um, also being much closer to practice as I have an answer to this. It's one of the really puzzles after now being a couple of years an innovation professor is, why is the state of practice of innovation management so low? It's, they're really great methods. They're really great tools. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned crowdsourcing. There's a lot of knowledge how to really conduct a crowdsourcing contest correctly. But if you see what's implemented in practice, it's often on a very you know, low level of sophistication. And so, yeah, yeah, I would say everyone is talking about customer centricity, but then still is using um, only you know, badly organized focus groups. And I think that's a problem. And this is where we still have to really educate you know, companies um, and, 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 and get them in making it a routine and not just a you know, routine, something that's really woven into their processes as are technical validation tests you know, and quality tests, they are interwoven in, you know, I don't launch a product if you don't want through CE certification, you know, and all these technical things. But I know a lot of companies that launch products that never went through a thorough need analysis and concept testing. Yeah, I, I like your emphasis and I want to stretch this on, on routine. So kind of turning this. So, so in, my, in my work, I've seen is. This, there has been kind of shift now that we were talking about as I realized this. So very at, at the very beginning when I started working in innovation, well, some 10 years ago now, is innovation was a one-off thing. You did a mm -hmm. project and then that was kind of fine for three, mm -hmm. three or four years. And then oh, suddenly we have to do innovation again and then you would launch another project. And this is becoming more and more, but it's on a tiny scale, but still it's becoming more and more a continuous, a continuous thing. And, mm -hmm. and I feel like also kind of my client side has shifted and probably that's a, re a reflection of this. So it's more and more people, for example, from UX suddenly are in, are, uh, UX or POs are driving innovation and, mm -hmm. don't, and they doing it on a continuous basis. So I think that probably reflects this, this shift. I mean, it's still at, at a low scale, mm -hmm. but I feel like that that's very strongly where this is more kind of coming from. Mm -hmm. And I really like this emphasis on doing it continuously. I think that's the only, the only way to go about this in a sense. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, so, so, okay, I, no, well, there is a lot of questions, of course, still about <laughs> user centricity and level of sophistication and so on. But, but let's leave that maybe for, for a moment. I just mm -hmm. want to stretch um, this emphasis on, on, on continuous innovation. And, and uh, how you mentioned a couple of methods there that I think, at least in this room, resonate quite well. Um, Let's bring another topic. I, I feel like um, we, sh we have to talk, but you mentioned it before and we talked about AI a little bit before and um, everybody who visits your LinkedIn profile, which I strongly encourage people to do, will immediately see work on, on AI. There is also a lot of you, uh, um, um, kind of, there are a couple of avatars of you that you will find on the LinkedIn page. So if for, not for anything else, then for that, it's worthwhile. <laughs> so a lot of your recent work has been focused on, on, on AI, or at least of what I've seen your, some of your publications, and it was actually one of the publications that you did that sparked my interest again in your work, where you kind of, I think you were one of the first who, who published uh, an academic paper, and the abstract was written by ChatGPT, if I remember mm -hmm. correct, or at least by some kind yes. of, of, of AI. No, yes. So, so, so walk us a little bit through this, I mean... It, it's quite recent. It's a couple of months ago for me, at least, that that roller coaster started. So, 
how has innovation started to creep, uh, sorry, AI started to creep into innovation and where do you see this going? Yeah, so, well, yes and no, it just started. So we were super <laughs> lucky um, to really publish the first, you know, sophisticated paper in a good journal on just an exploration how ChatGPT or we use GPT-3, you know, with a different user interface at this time can help you through the entire innovation process. I have a long-term interest in generative AI. Actually, generative AI is out there since many, many years, more as a technical problem-solving tool as part of CAD software and so on. And um, so I always had this interest. And then when I learned about these transformer language models, that's the AI technology, so to say, behind ChatGPT, I was very interested as actually technical problem solving is, you know, formulas and quants. But innovation is very much words. And it's language. You know, needs a language, concept statements are language, opportunities are language, and so on. Feedback is language. And so when I heard about this new technology of transformer models that can really process language in a totally novel way, I got very interested. And they, then they had this ambitious PhD student, um, Sebastian Bougeri, who got us very early access to GPT-3. We were some of the first people in Germany to get a beta account. Yeah. And then at, into, at the end of 2020, beginning 21, we were starting around playing around with this. And I started to talk about it, but no one cared you know people couldn't really imagine it really demanded this press hype earlier that year you know that everyone got away but then we really played around and published um that paper with this exploration and actually was one year under review the paper was ready oh, wow. at the beginning of 22 um, so really more than 18 years ago uh, but luckily it was one year in review as then we had perfect timing as it was just published when there was the middle of the hype just started so um but Actually, what we showed in this paper and what was a fascinating thing for me was that all of the things you could do before. So, for, for example, ChatGPT is perfectly in a semantic analysis of blog posts. But before you hired a, spe a specified agency that was really, you know, um, um, specialized in the semantic analyze of big bodies of text like social media stream and you were outsourcing it. Now you can do it by yourself without any data science training. Of course, there had been there's an entire school of a you know computer added creativity. This is really out there since 20 years, but you really needed experts trained in these programs to help you. Now, with a little bit of Googling on the best prompts, you can do it by yourself. So I think the really big breakthrough was there was. Springer, Springer Nature, one of the big um, academic publishers, already in 2018 published a book as a hardcover, entirely written by an algorithm. The author name is Beta Writer. If you go to Google Scholar, you find Writer, Beta. So 28, the first hardcover book published by Springer, entirely written by an algorithm. But again, you needed to be a data scientist to program this. And I know that around the time my PhD students also started or stopped to read the papers, but to explore topic models to really process 10,000s of um, things. But they had to be PhD students. They needed the supercomputer of the university to do it. Now you can do this all on yourself. And I think this is what really the novelty of ChatGPT and these language models, it is so accessible to all of us, while a lot of the things were possible before. There's one novel thing, however, that's super fascinating for me, that these um, language models, they have something what in creativity we call association ability. They really have this ability of what we call creativity. You know, it's an, 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 an element of creativity. They really perfectly can combine two things not combined before do something meaningful. And this was not possible before. And therefore, what I think is on the one hand side, we can use this tool to automate a lot of activities very easily that were possible before, like processing large bodies of men. But second, and this is just, I would say accessibility is a novel element here. Yeah. But secondly, we also now can use this tool as a creativity, as a brainstorming partner. 
And this is also how we should use them. And especially on a podcast, you know, focused on customer insights, it's very important not to do use ChatGPT to replace your market research. <laughs> you know, when Scott were talking about that he in former times went out to have qualitative, rich interviews, you know, with customers, different perhaps lead users, average customers, you still need to do this. ChatGPT can't replace this. However, to create perhaps a better interview guideline, to get already some initial ideas of better questions, to really have an initial idea how a customer journey could look like, ChatGPT is a perfect partner, but it's a creativity tool. It's not a research tool to create something novel, you know? Yeah. And it's good yeah. in summarizing text you give it. Okay, yeah, once you have hours and hours of transcribed interviews, ChatGPT is perfect again in summarizing this, yeah, and really helping you to make sense of this. And this is really what I think is it's very complementary, but it's not a substitution to good practices of customer user-focused research. I, re I, I want to emphasize a couple of things there because I feel like that, that was really rich. To f the, 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 so let me start maybe from, from, from the, the mm -hmm. end. So the way I use, and I think that's very uh, important to emphasize, the way I use ChatGPT, and I think it should be used or kind of reflects what you have been saying is when I'm too lazy or when I have to improve something. So kind of when I, I know I have to think about it, but let's give me just something to start, then it's it's brilliant. It really helps you to kickstart your thoughts, but it shouldn't kind of replace it. Or when you already have something, how can I improve it? I use it a lot, in, especially about language. And, and I think that's a point I want to stress as well that, that we have hit a couple of times now in the podcast and that's made me think that we should do something just maybe on this, but the con connection between language and innovation. And I think mm -hmm. that somehow seems to be the threat here also in AI. So the ability to play around with language, understand language, and that has a direct link, I think, to innovation itself. Because as you mm -hmm. rightly said, innovation is so much about language. It's about how you frame something even can be almost like an innovation. You reframe a product and it's a different thing. So so I really like this thread of, thread of language. Um, there isn't really a question in there because I really love what, what you've been developing, but um, maybe the, 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 the thing I want to emphasize, because there is a lot of talk, at least in my, my user research uh, kind of world, where there is even products now on the market that, or well, on the market, there are product, there are a couple of guys that put together something like a synthetic user where they kind of say, okay, you can, you can tweak uh, your persona. You can say, I want somebody that's 35 years old, that they buy, drive a Mercedes and, I don't know, uh, like to go on holiday to Spain. I don't know. And then kind of ChatGPT behaves as if it was that yeah. kind of customer. It could. So we'll see. So I would say it's, again, great to expand your mind. And it's good. You know, it can actually come up for at the first place with persona, creates a persona, and then behave as if it would be the persona. And then you deploy, you know, mid-journey to really make drawings of this. So but again, I it's the same like with lead user innovation. This is um, what you get from a lead user you shouldn't implement. The same as what ChatGPT is doing for you, you shouldn't implement. This may be something you take as an informed perspective, either to really um, implement, but... Uh, Okay, that's a little bit different. So it again depends on your, let's say, solution space. If there's um, um, Taka Marion, a great colleague at Northeastern University in Boston, you may invite him to this podcast, and really, really invented the first entirely autonomous innovation system. So he has three algorithms. Algorithm number one calls big bodies of customer data for latent needs. So he claims he really discovered the first algorithm to identify latent needs out of big information. The second, he has a GAM who automatically creates out of these latent needs concept statements, so product descriptions, both technically and, you know, on the value proposition. And then that's what I find the most interesting. He has so much data about the market that he can replace the, the market research, the concept testing. He can oh. predict the success of this in the market. However, now comes the big however. 
he more in the moment can do this for sports shoe. And sports shoes are totally stable market. For sports shoes, think about what is the innovation on sports shoe? There's very, very little. There are hundreds and thousands of new models launched, but they're more or less all the same and some flops and not. So in, a, in this very constrained space, this system works perfectly as he has a lot of training data from sneakerhead consumer forums. He had a lot of data on performance, as he knows on Amazon, you know, all the websites, you can purchase this data, how different models work. And there's a very clear language to describe a concept of a sports shoe. So for this, he really created an autonomous uh, development system. And there I could say Nike or Puma just can put a, push a button and they get new shoes out and they will be as successful as the previously ones. However, I don't see too many other markets where this would work, <laughs> you know, for, so for yeah. other markets. So there may be these very constrained markets where this works. And, um, but in others, I think you just get a concept, you know, from what you said, you have a persona, take it as an inspiration to dig deeper into it, but it doesn't do the problem solving for you. You know, you still have to do the solution space with all the technical solutions and so on. So yeah. I just see like what you said earlier, these tools for most markets up to now with what's possible now and perhaps something will be possible in three years, what we can't imagine today, you know, with the pace of innovation in that field. But I think today it is perfect to be better in what we are doing already today, but it's not really replacing it. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I that's, what was the what was he called? Haka Marion at Northeastern. Um, so I will give you for your show notes a, a nice article which he published where he really describes yeah. the system. He has a startup called ADA, ADA, where he, they also now spin off this technology out of Northeastern University in Boston. And it's just fascinating. And they are now, it's a big test. Can they bring it to other market domains? Okay. I so there's, all... a, there's a paradox that the somehow at the heart of using these kinds of systems for, for innovation, which is that they are learning based on existing data. So we train them on existing um, uh, knowledge, but the, the proposition is that from this existing knowledge, we can derive some something new. Where in your opinion, does this newness come from if, um, if these systems are only based on things that are already existing? Yeah, well, we could say, Jonathan, that's a pattern of most innovation, actually. You know, the, the, um, and it's a good example in the patent offices, the US and the German patent office define an invention as something new to the world. The European patent office that was founded later defines an invention as the combination of existing knowledge in a way that's unobvious to an expert. So, but the combination of existing knowledge is an invention, you know, really that's, that you can get a patent on. And so this is, um, so I would say that's the character of most innovations and inventions actually that you combine existing knowledge in a novel way. And, um, but I agree with you. And this is what I really thought when, when talking about Takamarion's example. It is very good to do this incremental innovation, you know, of an ex-sneaker combination. I I wouldn't say this could, there are these barefoot shoes, if I think, you know, barefoot yeah. shoes, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't know if their algorithm could come up with a barefoot shoe, you know? It can perfectly come up as a learned about these very elaborated fashion sneakers like Prada is doing, you know, with these big, like, like foam. It learned that. But the basic concept of a barefoot shoe, can it come with a new foaming technology, you know, for the cushioning? No, as this is not part of this training data. Okay. Um, however, there are other algorithms and there's a great, great paper in, 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 in nature um, in the field of material science where they actually trained an algorithm to come up with novel materials. So it really does the basic research to create out recipes, so to say, for novel materials. And these um, researchers put the algorithm 
intest towards the entire humankind by giving the algorithm only all the knowledge from 1900 until 1990, you know? And then they had the last 20 years, what humans invented in the last 20 years as a benchmark. And actually they showed that their algorithm came up with algorithms with this knowledge up to 1990, immediately that humans only came up seven or eight years later. So this algorithm was seven to eight years ahead of not just one human, but all the experts in that field in material science in inventing something that today is now in this class of materials seen as one of some of the breakthroughs. So this is possible today, you know, but again, as these material inventions depend on recombining existing knowledge, you know, and these algorithms now are amazingly good in finding um, open spaces, you know, where is a field, where is an opportunity, and then recombine um, this knowledge. And then if you go to Toronto, to Azura, Allensburg, um, Turek, um, uh, uh, or something, it's a, it's a complicated name, but he has a self-driving chemical lab. So he is an algorithm that defines new materials, and then a robotic lab that is entirely putting, mixing this together, analyzing, no human involved. So this is there. This is no science fiction. This exists for technical problem solving, you know. But what you need is still the human who provides the target. You still have the human who says, actually, I think there is a market for material, for coating with these, you know, elements, with these characteristics that I would like to produce on this production equipment for so many, you know, dollars for ton and so on. So you still need the problem, you know, the need from humans. But then a lot actually of this technical problem solving process, especially in like material science is very advanced. There are autonomous systems in then um, existing that really come up what I would say are really novel inventions. Okay. Oh, you're... Do you recall the name of the person who um, was doing these uh, studies? The, the one yeah, that Alan Asura Kurkzak. He has a very complicated name and I'm very bad with name. But if you Google or your thing is self-driving chemical lab in Toronto, you will find him immediately. Okay. I had the the image that immediately came to my mind. I think it's 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 this Mickey Mouse episode where he kind of has these brooms that work for him, and then all of the, the whole chaos starts. But it's, it's probably it's a I bit more that. organized than that. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah, but that's actually a big debate, and probably the next podcast for you. What's really the role of of humans? As actually he, yeah. in his perspective, says the human in his vision only provides what we would call now the prompts, you know, all it provides a question and is observing the system, how it does technical problem solving. And from time to time is intervening, you know, and actually it the human realizes the question I gave to the system was wrong. The task was wrong, but yeah. all the rest is autonomously um, executed by this autonomous lab. Someone put this to me last last week or so, and I think it would it really hit it, it resonated with me. I don't know if it's entirely true, but they said like up to now we have always asked the question: How can technology improve us? How can we use a computer for you to improve us? And somehow this seems to be shifting. That now with all these more advanced AI things, suddenly the question comes up: Well, what is there left that I can add? <laughs> so that yeah. as the humans. So, I don't think this is entirely but changing. There's so much but left. It just there's this one point I also want to emphasize is in the end, it's not just to come up with great products. It is about yeah. building relationship with customers, having loyal customers, and all this AI can't replace. So perhaps we just have more time, you know, to really care about our customers, service them, advise them, work with them. You know, as you're not loyal to an AI, you know, that created a product, you're loyal to a company, to a brand, to someone that really, you know, solves your processes. And well, perhaps also at one time, there's an avatar that is doing it, you know, it replaces a social contact. But again, I hope humans still remain humans <laughs> and not more humans than avatars. There's this At least fantastic, for the majority. Yeah. <laughs> There's this fantastic quote I stole from some former guests of ours, uh, uh, Ian Kerr and Jason Frasca, and they it's it's from uh, Henri Bergson, and it's a speculative problem is solved as soon as it is properly stated. 
Um, and, I, and I thought that's a very interesting idea. So you were talking about just putting prompts and that the we as humans would be stating the problem, but actually stating a problem, if you really think about it, it's not that easy. If you want to state a problem yeah. correctly, and this ties into to this uh, AI alignment problem, because specifically that is exactly the issue, is that you want to, uh, well, if you have these super intelligent AIs, you want them to behave in a way that's uh, uh, be uh, beneficial to human beings. But to define what that means, is actually not easy, and this is not a solved problem. And I, I, somehow, I believe this is uh, we we face a similar problem in this space of innovation. How do you actually define a problem in a way that you're not actually giving the solution? Absolutely, and that is actually I think there um, we can learn a lot from the open innovation movement as we had these crowdsourcing of technical processes, you know, where actually stating a problem that others could solve it, see, really understand your problem very quickly, even if they came from different domain, um, was one of the main success factors. And that this is similar also in this interaction. But you said another important point, and this is why I prefer in my papers about this AI and innovation to not just talk about AI, but something what we call hybrid intelligence. And this is really the combination of human and machine intelligence in a way that you really collaborate with each other. You know, in former times, we had either humans classifying pictures, and then you had an algorithm, you know, doing pattern recognition, or you had an algorithm doing a prediction, and then a human executing on this prediction or prescription. But the idea of this hybrid intelligence is really that you have a collaboration. This is why I also love ChatGPT and so much. If you play with the ChatGPT, you really have the feeling that you interact with it, or you get something it learns yeah. from you, from the context. And so I really there had this idea of collaboration with this machine. And that's exactly also what my vision is, you know, how, how machine intelligence and humans work together is really with this hybrid intelligence. It's really like collaboration. So we are doing in the moment large scale experiments, how we can augment creativity sessions, you know, brainstorming sessions with AI. And there it's also what we really see that the most productive sessions is if you have one human whom you team with an AI, it's much more productive than a lot of humans brainstorm with each other. We have a lot of group effects, you know, actually Osborne's brainstorming of people together is not the most productive thing. And they're, but they're also much more um, effective than just brainstorming alone, you know, as in they're biased. So, so, but making this in a meaningful way, where this really, you have this interaction, I think this is what leads us forward. And it could be also that an AI is really helping us to first formulate the problem in a better way, that mm. we then actually feed to another AI for problem solving. Yeah. So as, as you said, Jonathan, um, formulating a problem is often the most difficult thing in a, in, in, in a good way. So, and, and I think and this is exactly, Jan, when you said you use ChatGPT to do a persona, I would say you really are in the problem space. You try to explore, to describe this persona, but it doesn't give you the technical solution of the product you launch in the market. You know, it just gives you a better briefing, you know, describes the problem at the end of the problem space before you go to the solution space. And Peter Thiel, of course, understood this very well with Palantir because he was mm -hmm. one of the first to to have this idea of uh, that humans with uh, mm -hmm. AI systems would be more powerful than just uh, either one of them alone. Exactly. Very nice. So, so I want to kind of bring uh, bring this. So, I'm I'm starting to miss more and more in this discussion. I'm starting to miss my university times. I realize. So, <laughs> how can <laughs> Um, can you point us a little bit, how can innovators that are listening now, how can they kind of interact with, with either you or with the, the, the RWTH Aachen? Mm -hmm. And is there ways for companies to reach out? I think it's, I mean, that's broadly known, but still like, how can they, how can they, how can they do that? Yeah, thanks for asking. So first, you mentioned uh, we have these uh, MicroMaster on edX, a big MOOC site, which is actually an entire innovation program entirely for free, five classes, 
However, I have to say, as it's really, these MOOCs are very traditional. So all the cool AI stuff is not in there, but for profound, you know, education or more radical innovation, that's a good start. Um, in Aachen, we have big international programs with a combination of management and engineering, some MME programs, and one dedicated to technology and innovation management. We have always like 15 entirely international students, you know, that want to go out of engineering more in the innovation management side. Our executive MBA is based on that. But then I would say I'm very open and accessible as I really learned that most of our great research programs started with clever questions from practitioners. And I love this email. They say, Frank, Frank, I read your paper and I think it's total bullshit because <laughs> oh, and then we normally have an interesting conversation or you can say it in more polite way. So we feel free to reach out here. Um, at Aachen, we have something where we are very proud of. We are probably one of the universities that's clo most closely aligned with industry. We have 450 companies have an R&D office on campus. So 450 companies have teams permanently on campus to innovate more for technical problem solving um, with, with my more the technical colleagues. You know, so it's really a super great innovation ecosystem here. So I just can invite everyone, if you stop by in Aachen, it's a small town between Cologne and Brussels just at the border between Germany, the Netherlands, and Belgium, um, with a very long history. It used to be the heart of Europe with Charlemagne. Um, but I just can invite everyone to stop by for coffee, visit our campus, and really see marvelous labs uh, where we co-create with industry. It seems like a place you might be able to find a good beer somewhere, I'm guessing. Absolutely. And if you don't like the German one, Belgium is just 10 kilometers away. <laughs> right. Very nice. So a call for two different kinds of lead users there. <laughs> if not for the innovation, then... All right. Well, Frank, thank you so much for taking the time and, and then answering our, our, our question and providing providing your view. Is there anything else that you want to add? So I, I mentioned your LinkedIn profile. I think that's really also something to recommend. Anything else that you want to, want to add or let us know? Ah, I, mean, I think we had a really nice conversation. Thanks a lot um, on that. And I would say whatever you do in innovation, for me, really this basic, what I learned over the years, you have to be open. You know, and this is somehow what I really see. You have people that are head of innovation management. I think, oh, you are so close. You just stick to, you know, the principles you know. You stick to the processes you learned. You're embedded just in your industry. So for me, the biggest success factor is to just have the open mind you know and go out and reach out and i think this is like probably one of the missions of your podcast also yeah. to increase the openness and i think with this uh, yeah just my last word stay open and continue to innovate that's a perfect that's a perfect place to end it so thank you so much and that concludes today's product quest podcast so as always send any comments or ideas for future shows to productquestpodcast.gmail.com and see you next time Thanks a lot. Thank you very wow, much. That was fantastic. I loved it, Frank. Really great. Yeah, yeah, Self-discovery nice. labs. Wow. That's crazy stuff.